morning, everyone. Uh, last Sunday, we started a new short Advent series based on what is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. And as I was preparing for this, I discovered a number of really interesting uh, facts about this verse, and here's one of them. Does anyone know what this is and where this is? Cleopatra's Needle, which is where? Yeah, it's situated in the Thames Embankment in London. It's approximately, apparently, 3,500 years old. It's an Egyptian obelisk, I think. Uh, it was brought to London in 1878. But does anyone know what is contained in the pedestal of this? Well, apparently there's a time capsule. And within the time capsule are a number of things, apparently, including... Photographs of 12 of the most beautiful women of the day. Uh, That was in 1878. Uh, A box of cigars. A map of London. A razor. Ten newspapers. A box of hairpins. And get this. Copies of John 3, 16 in 215 languages. Such is the perceived importance of this 26-word parade of hope. And one of the things I often wonder is, when will that time capsule be opened? I have no idea. Last, uh, last Sunday morning, we looked at the one word that I suggested that stands out from the rest. The word perish. Which, as you look at this verse, it's the uncomfortable word there. It's the difficult word. It's a threatening word, primarily because it forces us to face up to the harsh reality of hell it's a word of warning but as we said last week the rest of this verse the other 25 words if you like reveal to us how you can actually avoid that word how you can avoid that experience that reality and how you can avoid that place that that word alludes to and then last Sunday night we reflected on the first 14 words of this verse the love dimension The fact that God so loves, that his love is outrageous, it's extravagant, it's unconditional. We actually said last Sunday night that it is a giving love. Because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave, not a bunch of rules and regulations, not some code of conduct, not some list of requirements, but what God actually gave was his one and only son. And that's why this verse is so key to Christmas. It's a great verse to look at during December because Christmas is, at the end of the day, a celebration of giving love. And so this morning we turn to the next dimension, to two almost literally central words, whoever believes. And those are words which present every single one of us sitting in this room this morning. And there's no exception to this. They present us with a clear challenge, a very clear challenge. And the reason there are no exceptions is because who isn't a whoever? Do you know, we tend to, or we might create barriers and categories for people. We box people based on their race, their skin color, their social class, their political persuasion, their gender, etc. But God explodes all such divisions when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. It's for whoever. So that includes you and me 
It includes John and Edward. It includes Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness. It includes Barack Obama and Osama bin Laden. And this idea of whoever is stressed time and time again in Scripture. Let me just show you some examples. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Whoever publicly acknowledges me, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me. And whoever wishes let him take the free gift of the water of life. You see, God doesn't have favorites. There's no such thing as the special one in God's eyes. It's for the rich. It's for whoever. It's for the rich. It's for the seemingly sorted and together, as well as for the rejected, homeless, street sleepers of our world. Whoever is an all-embracing, all-encompassing word. There are no age. There are no height. No size restrictions. And what it also includes, and for those of you who are familiar with Max Licato's book 316, this idea of whoever also includes a whenever dimension. And it's this aspect of the whoever that sometimes I think jars with us a little. You know, one of my uh, favorite and yet most frustrating stories that Jesus ever told is recorded in Matthew 20. Uh, if you have a Bible, please please turn with it, turn to it. Sorry, with me. It's a provocative parable of the workers who all get paid exactly the same, despite the number of hours they racked up. And so we're going to read the parable. It's familiar, but we're going to read it anyway. So uh, as we often do, can we stand for the public reading of God's word? Matthew 20, the first 15 verses. Let's stand. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and he sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again at noon and again at three in the afternoon. Did exactly the same thing. About five he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day? doing nothing because no one's hired us they answered well he said to them you also go and work in the vineyard well when evening came the owner of the vineyard said to his supervisor call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first the workers who were hired at five in the afternoon came and each received the denarius so when those came who were hired first they expected to receive more but each one of them also received the denarius and when they received it they began to grumble against the landowner These men who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? Please take a seat. So, the story, a landlord hires a bunch of guys to work in his vineyard at 6am in the morning. He agrees to pay them about 50 quid for a day's work. At 9am, he hires some more workers, does the same at noon, does the same at 3, and does the same at one hour before clock-off time. The foreman gets the responsibility of handing out the wages at the end of the day, and so, beginning with the Johnny-come-latelys, the guys who only work for 60 minutes, he starts and he pays them 50 quid. Now, the men who started work at 6 a.m. see this and are thinking to themselves, well, this has got to be our lucky day. One hour's work equals 50 quid, nine-hour shift must mean we're going to earn a fortune. 
So imagine the look in their faces whenever they open up their brown envelope to discover what's inside 50 quid. That's totally unfair, they say. They've been knocking their pans in. They even make the point that we worked in the hottest part of the day and yet we get exactly the same amount of cash as those who showed up at the 11th hour. What is going on? It's out of order. And so the landlord checks that they got what they agreed to work for, 50 quid, which was the arrangement. And then he comes out with this biting phrase. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? And the answer, although it's not recorded, but we all feel it is, yes. You better believe I'm envious. I'm outraged. I'm appalled. In fact, I'm downright disgusted. How come a lastminute.com confessor receives the same grace as a lifetime servant of Jesus Christ? How come deathbed converts and lifelong saints enter via the same gate? I love the idea of grace, but I'm not that comfortable with its implications. How do we honestly feel, I mean honestly feel, about the prayer of a serial killer who requests grace with his final breath? Are you envious because I'm generous? You better believe it, God, I am. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, and whoever also means whenever. Such is the amazing grace of God. Let's move on to the next word. Believes. Whoever believes, and it's here that we enter the realm of faith. The word believe or believes appears something like 70 times in John's Gospel. And if you turn to uh, chapter 20, verse 31, here it is on the screen, of John's Gospel, John appears to uncover the purpose of his Gospel. These have been written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote what he wrote. You see, clearly the importance of believing and belief cannot be overestimated when it comes to embracing Christianity, when it comes to following Jesus. But what does it actually mean to believe? Well, immediately when you hear the word belief, you tend to think of a mind activity. It's something that you've got to wrap your head around. You've got to understand. You've got to explain. You've got to be able to rationalize it. And yet believing in Jesus is so much more than a purely intellectual thing. According to James, even the demons believe in God in that sense. But they don't trust. And that's the difference That's the issue with the belief we're talking about here. Now, I'm not suggesting that you check your brains at the door, that you don't have to think to be a Christian, that you don't have to rationalize it at times. Of course you do. But Christian faith is belief that involves a willingness to trust. Christian faith is a belief that involves a willingness to trust. Let me try to illustrate this. Many people have ever been to an indoor climbing wall. Stick your hand. Right, quite a few of you. When I was uh, living in Balnehinch, I find it strange saying that now, whenever I was living in Balnehinch, whenever I was living in Balnehinch, I I took my three girls 
uh, down to the Tullymore Adventure Centre in Bransford to the Hot Rock Climbing Wall. It's a couple of years ago now. And they wonder why they keep asking me when are we going back. Anyway, the girls loved it. And uh, so for a couple of weeks after our visit, I actually went back with a couple of my friends. There were two dads. Uh, We went back to this parents' evening where we could learn more about climbing so that we could actually bring our kids back by ourselves and do it all with them. Now, Dave and Gary, my two friends, they're good friends. I believe in them. But here's the issue. Do I trust them? You see, whenever you're climbing, you get connected up to this thing called a belay harness. And you go up about 20 or 30 feet. And when you reach the top, the idea is that you let go of the wall. You lean back. And the only thing that stops you from free falling, hitting the ground and ending your life, or certainly wrecking it, is the person holding the rope at the bottom and the effectiveness of this little belay device. And so I climbed and I let go and I leant back and effectively I did nothing at that point other than trust one of those guys standing on the ground and that little metal contraption. What was I thinking? And that's the thing. I didn't just think. I trusted. I trusted. Now back to the context of 3.16 because remember this verse these 26 words appear as part of a conversation we did this last Sunday when we set it in context but these 26 words appear as part of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus the Jewish council member who visited Jesus by night now let me show you the two verses that precede John 3.16 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now what has or what had Moses, a snake, and the desert got to do with this? This is a stained glass window depiction of this event that happened thousands or so many years before Nicodemus' chat with Jesus. So why did Jesus refer to this? Well Nicodemus as an elite Torah scholar would have immediately connected with this reference. Immediately. Moses had rescued, God with Moses had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and they'd entered that phase in their history known as the wilderness wanderings. And it was their own fault that they ended up wandering around circles for 40 years but God didn't give up on them. In fact, God kept miraculously providing for them water from rocks, bread from heaven and guiding pillars of cloud by day, fire by night. But despite God's provision the people still complained. They still whinged. They still moaned. They still gurned. And God had had enough, which is fair enough. And so, get your head around this, so he sends venomous snakes among them. And they attack the people and they bite, bite. They bite them as poisonous snakes do. And some people die. And understandably, that has quite an impact. And so the people come to Moses and they confess their sin. They confess their sin against God. They confess their sin against Moses. And they plead with him. And they plead with God to take the snakes away. And so God tells Moses to make a bronze snake, to put it in a pool, and say that if anyone looks at it, they'll live. And right enough, whenever anyone was bitten by a snake, and whenever that person looked at this bronze pool, they lived. Now here's the point. 
did the Israelites intellectually understand how this worked? Or did they think too much about it? I doubt it. Their challenge was to trust. Not the bronze snake wrapped around a pole, but to trust in a God who said, look at this and you'll live. The whole story is recorded in Numbers 21. So Nicodemus, just like these people, if you believe, if you trust in the Son of Man, who will be, who must be lifted up, and again, as we read this, we reference that to the cross. If you believe in the Son of Man who is lifted up, you will have eternal life. You're not physically dying because of a snake bite, but you're physically sick or you're spiritually sick because of the sting of sin. And the end result of that condition is you will perish. You will die. But God loves, God gave, and whoever believes in this Son who's lifted up, will live. In other words, whoever lets go, leans back, and trusts in Jesus, will find the fourth dimension, which we'll look at next week. You see, Jesus was standing right in front of Nicodemus, so believing in him was not purely an intellectual issue. He could see Jesus. He could know that Jesus was there. The challenge faced by this high-ranking Jewish leader was this. Will I trust this Jesus? Will I actually commit my life to this person? And that remains the challenge of Christianity today. Because plenty of people at one level believe in Jesus up to a point. But true faith, really believing, requires a willingness to trust Jesus with your entire life. Now, for some people, these two words, whoever believes, seem a bit tame. Far too tame, actually. Surely, we should have to do something. Apart from belief, apart from just trust. So, for example, it might have made so much more sense if God had said, whoever works for him, or whoever satisfies him shall not perish Because believing in Jesus strikes us as shockingly simple and really, really accessible. And is that not the point? Because that's one of the reasons Jesus said, listen, see if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to become like a little kid. Why? Because kids trust so much more readily. They don't need to get it all figured out. They don't need to have it all sorted. They don't need to have every question answered, rationalized, explained, processed, dissected, and understood. Kids just trust. Do you know, as I stood at the top of that climbing wall and leant back, I looked to check that Dave was ready to do what he was supposed to do. I even asked him, Dave, are you ready to do what you're supposed to do? But you know, a week earlier, Kristen, my four-year-old at that time, She climbed, she touched the top, and she just jumped back. She didn't even think. She just trusted that the guy at the bottom who said, you'll be all right, just lean back. She didn't even question it. Christian faith is a belief in, it's a trust in Jesus. I might want to do something. Most of us actually, if we're honest, we actually want to contribute something to this. 
We want to give something, but what we're actually called to do is just believe, just rely, just depend, just trust. And I want to finish by explaining this a little bit further with a story. And if you have read Licado's book, you'll know about this father and son. Some of you may know about them, have read about them. Team Hoyt, as they're better known. And in 1962, Rick was born. But because his umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck, his brain starved of oxygen and he almost died. Rick survived, but he can't speak and he can't walk. And in 1977, when Rick was 15, he decided that he wanted to run. But how do you run when your legs don't work? And so he asked his dad if they could enter a five-mile charity race. And Rick's dad wasn't a runner, but he loaded his son onto a wheelchair and off they went. And they haven't stopped since then. Team Hoyt has completed 64 marathons, 206 triathlons, 6 Ironman triathlons where you swim 2.4 miles, cycle 112 miles and then run 26 miles immediately after one another. They have completed 204 10k runs and they've even ran across America. It took them 45 days, 3,735 miles. And for running, Rick's dad pushes him in a three-wheeler. For cycling, Rick's dad straps his son to the front of a bike. And for swimming, Rick is putting a dinghy and his dad tows him. Rick relies on his dad to do it all. To lift him, to push him, to pedal him, to tow him. Other than that, Rick has a willing heart. But he makes no contribution to the effort. He depends entirely upon his father. And I know the connection's obvious, but God wants us to do the same. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can bring. It's about everything that he has done. We're just called to believe. We're just called to rely on our Father. We're just told to depend on him. We're just asked, invited to trust in him. And you know, whenever these uh, two guys come across the finishing line, the post-race listings include both the names. The dad does all the work, but the son shares in the victory. Why? Because Rick believes. Because he believes, he benefits. God has done it all. God's loved. God's gave. God's sacrificed. And what's our part? Trust. Trust God with our entire lives. So the gospel extends to whoever no exceptions that includes a whenever dimension such as the scandal of God's grace the gospel extends to whoever believes in him and therein lies the challenge of this Christmas and every Christmas will we let go will we lean back fall back trust in God recognizing that he's done it all and for some of us here this morning that might mean trusted in Jesus for the first time but for many of us the challenge we actually face with faith is this are you and I going to trust God in the midst of what we're all going through when circumstances threaten to overwhelm you when the temptation to compromise is so intense whenever we feel like giving up and just packing this all in Whenever heartache actually consumes you, whenever the financial world collapses around you, the issue we all face is, am I going to lean back and trust God? 
Am I going to trust him with my entire life? Whoever believes.